0: crying out to God that you and that I could be sanctified body, soul and spirit we have allowed ourselves in the rush of this day in the rush of television and internet the rush of our little cell phones in the rush and demands of the money making deal we have allowed ourselves to become indifferent almost to the point of coldness toward Jesus. And I want to be very clear with you as we begin this week's broadcast on Pilgrim's Progress that without any doubt we have no life in ourselves. The The small amount of life we experience on this earth is but loaned to us for a short time. Our life passes so quickly, and then it's gone. And we face the judgment bar of God. What will happen when you face the judgment bar of God? Have you allowed yourself to neglect prayer and meditation and the reading of the Word? Have you wasted your time in social media, in entertainment? Have you wasted your time on the incidentals of a wicked world while not giving adequate attention to the things of heaven? Our hearts... Must be on fire for Jesus. We must clear away all that obstructs our view of heaven. We must know that we are on a pilgrimage to Zion. And I fear greatly that many of you have been entrapped in comfortable religion, not the gospel of Jesus. You have believed a lie that you can slowly cruise along in your life, enjoying the things you choose to enjoy, while neglecting the very things that will bring salvation to your soul. Everywhere I turn, I see people slumbering. I see people not earnestly crying out to God, I see Christians who have become feeble and who languish in their worldliness. I have seen the evil arise in the church today. The church has become more and more filled with the world. There is no longer a separation between God's people and the devil's people. I'm very troubled by this. Oh, I could come to you today with much theological information. I could come and comfort you in your sin. I could come and give you some inspiration. Try harder. All of that is utter foolishness. The gospel is not attained by trying harder. The gospel is about dying to this life and to this world and seeking after Jesus Christ with all of our hearts. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do when you face the judgment bar of God? How will you stand on that day? Don't pretend, as the Jewish people did, saying, Oh, we have the temple. Oh, we're God's chosen people. No, Titus came and burned down their temple and killed them and destroyed Jerusalem. Don't pretend that you can say, Oh, I'm saved. I love Jesus. I'm on my way to heaven and not have the evidence of that in the ferociousness of your heart, crying out after Jesus. If you don't have that passion for Jesus, how are you going to stand before Him? Now, I'm going to share some things with you today that are precious treasures. And I'm warning you now before I do this. Do not take lightly my words, for if you do, they will come back and haunt you on the day of judgment. As you were asked, you had an opportunity to hear the true gospel, and you turned aside. You were filled with your own world and your own interests, and you grow cold toward me. And I left, and you didn't know it. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. It's a grave warning I bring today. To repent. To utterly consecrate your life to Jesus. To give Him full authority and power over your life. To stop trying to be in between. You cannot stand in between. You're either walking clean without sin before God or you're walking in sin and you're separated from God. We're going to look at that very carefully. I want to share with you to begin a portion of a story from a little book, They Knew Their God, Volume 1. You can find this referenced on our webpage at NationalPrayerChapel.com Also, we'll tell you there how you can acquire these volumes if you so choose. There are seven of them. They're paperbacks. And they tell the stories of wonderful men and women who earnestly sought after Jesus and then the wonderful experience they had as they walked totally committed to Jesus. Now, the reason I'm sharing these stories with you is that we know of so few people in today's world who walk like these men and women of the past. I'm going to share with you a portion of the story of Isaac Marsden. Isaac Marsden. The landlady at Wellington Inn in Dorchester listened as the 27-year-old Isaac regaled the inmates of the bar with the news that he had finished with his old life. She could remember times when this wild, infidel ringleader had overturned tables and broken wine glasses and held the room spellbound with his stories and his satire and scorn of the latest political speaker or the humble preacher at the Wesleyan Chapel. But he was a good customer, as well as a lodger at the inn, for his father, a manufacturer of cloth, had rented two rooms, one to be used for displaying his bolts of material to customers, and the other as a bedroom, where either he or his son could stay the night when returning from neighboring fairs and markets. When Isaac, however, knelt down on the sand floor and with terrible earnestness implored God to save the souls of the young men he had been guilty of leading into vice, her amazement turned to cynicism and laughter. She knew Isaac would soon be back to his old ways. From childhood, however, there had been a good influence thrown around Isaac's life. He had been the, had the good fortune to be born of a pious mother and an industrious father on June 3, 1807, in Yorkshire, England. When his older brother died, Isaac assumed the role of the eldest son of the family of ten. Isaac, as a small child, was... Withdrawn and quiet. He was contented to play within the walls of his own home with such familiar objects as the bobbins, known to almost every home in South Yorkshire, where looms were heard to be continually clicking as they turned out woolen cloth. The Wesleyans and the Primitives were most active in southern Yorkshire. But there was, as of yet, no meeting place in the town where the Marsdens lived. Anne Marsden, Isaac's mother, often lamented the fact that she could rarely attend services at the neighboring districts because of the demands of her growing family. She, therefore, started informal gatherings in her own kitchen, which which resulted in regular class meetings. And then a revival came. Isaac, though young, was moved, and he, he had to confide, and had he confided his inner feelings at that time to an adult, he perhaps could have been saved years of wasted and wild living. His mother received blessings at that time and became a power for good. Her husband, though outwardly respectable, was irreligious, and did not approve of the family's attendance at the Wesleyan services. William Marsden was a man of strong discipline and possessed of shrewd head for business. He cared little how wild Isaac's pranks might be or how mischievous his deeds, if he would only be diligent in school or work. Reading was... "'the little boy's delight, "'and he devoured any book or newspaper available. "'The companionships formed at school, however, "'were not helpful to industry or upright conduct. "'So Mr. Marsden removed his son "'and sent him to learn weaving at the loom. "'The boy had no notion for for work, "'so confined, so uh, concentrated, "'so he often ruined the cloth.' So the father put him to cropping, which job he did until he was sixteen or seventeen. Then expanding the business required Isaac, as his father's assistant, to deliver cloth and collect bills. He proved to be excellent in making up the parcels, visiting the fairs and the markets, and acting as a general salesman. This occupation suited the young man very well with an unusually strong physique. He could work hard all day long and then read a good share of the night without feeling any inconvenience the next morning. Anne Marsden scarcely saw her son now, for he rarely spent an evening at home. Instead, he frequented the inns of the neighborhood where he had been attending the fairs or markets. As a result of his wide range of reading, he possessed a larger knowledge than many of his companions who spent the evening with him in revelry. And so he would keep them amused with impersonating politicians and pastors. His ability to lead the strong and coerce the weak gave him unlimited influence for evil among the youth. As a mother watched her wayward boy Her almost hourly prayer became, O God, save my Isaac. He is beyond the reach of every arm but yours. Relatives and friends abandoned all hope for him. Others predicted the gallows eventually for both him and his companions. But the mother continued to cling to God for her boy one night the flame of ardent desire within her heart moved her to pray on through the night into the small hours of the morning. Finally, she was assured by an inward witness that her boy would be converted. Meanwhile, Isaac grew more reckless week by week. His books, written by Payne and Voltaire, were supplemented by everything which he could lay his hands upon of the same infidel nature. But God works by varied means. When the Reverend Robert Atkin was to preach, the desolate youth went to hear the notable minister, hoping to discover something of which he could scorn the speaker and entertain his circle of friends. The afternoon service was very hard for the man of God. Someone describing the service said, the word seemed to rebound back into his own bosom. He shook himself, roared like a lion, and said, I have long heard that Dorchester was the capital of the devil's kingdom. Now I believe it. Returning home from the sermon, Mr. Adkins gathered praying people together to intercede for the evening service. But meantime... Isaac Marston was smarting under the probing of the Spirit of God. He had never heard a man thunder out the terrors of the law like this one. The speaker seemed to look into his very face as he denounced his identical sins. His refuge of lies and the protective walls of his well-laid arguments crumbled under the anointed words. Numbed, He was impelled to remain behind and enter the inquiry room. When questioned by some Christians why he had taken this step, he could give no answer. A paralysis had seized him. It was said he thought nothing and felt nothing. He was numb before God. The influence of that sermon was abiding, but although convicted isaac did not yet earnestly seek for mercy in fact the following week found him the very back seat of the love feast with paper and pencil in hand intending to list the names of the speakers and outline the substance of their talks so that he could parody parody them at the inn the people were having a joyful time and he was having to work to fill in the notes Then his own mother arose and related how she had been praying for her wayward son. Suddenly, the Spirit of the Lord smote the young man with feelings of remorse. Isaac, he seemed to say, You've known these people all your life, in sickness and in health, in prosperity and adversity. They have been true to their principles. Some of them have endured persecution for Christ's sake, and yet they have honorably maintained their profession. You never knew any of them to do a mean, shabby, dishonest deed. They've never told you a lie or tried to deceive you. Are they lying now, or are they speaking the truth? If they are speaking the truth, You are on the wrong side of the hedge. Like a flash, the young man's infidel arguments appeared hollow and worthless. He could not resist such outstanding evidence. He folded his notebook, and springing to his feet, he told them that their happiness had convicted him. He stated how he was most unhappy and how he had resolved that if there was a heaven, he would gain it, and if there was a hell, he would shun it. Then with great emphasis he brought down those long, powerful arms like a sledgehammer upon the pew door, saying, if I ever ever do get converted, the devil may look out. Well, the communicants did not know how to receive this information. Was it just another practical joke? But the stricken young man knew within his own heart that his life was going to be very different. The next week he made a similar statement of his intentions. And in after years, Mr. Marsden spoke of those public utterances as important milestones of his life. I want to stop here a moment. What statements do you need to make to the Almighty God and to others regarding the coldness of your own heart, the wickedness of your own life? You've tried and you've been unsuccessful. Are you going to be content with just trying and failing? Are you going to be content to have a lukewarm, cold heart toward the Lord Jesus after all He's done for you? Are you really going to be content to go to the judgment bar of God and be cast into hell because you couldn't do it on your own? Or are you going to turn to Jesus and say, I am going to be saved, and I will do whatever it takes to be made holy, to be made righteous. I'm not going to play the modern game of the church, walking in the world, claiming to be Christian. Are you ready to renounce the world and its ways and follow after Jesus? Are you willing now to say, I will consecrate my life to Jesus? And will you allow Him now to begin to come in and deal with your heart? I'm so sick of American religion. I'm so, I'm so sick to the point of vomit of the worldly church in America. I am sick unto death. Of the political and the elite class of America controlling Americans by manipulating them with false news. ABC, CBS, NBC, even Fox News. I'm sick of them manipulating for wickedness. I'm sick of people telling me they're on Facebook. Are you kidding me? It is the devil's ground. There must be a great revival of holiness among us where the church is lost. And if the church is lost, the nation is lost. The pulpits of America used to flame with with fire and brimstone with righteousness. Today they're feminized and toned down and pleasant, nice you know what the definition of the word nice is? It's an old French word. It means stupid and foolish. The worst insult you could pay me is to say, Pastor, you're a nice man. Don't you ever say that to me. That's saying to me, Pastor, you're stupid and foolish. I don't want to be nice. I want to be like Jesus. Sharp. Double-edged a sledge with new and sharp teeth. I want you to turn to Jesus. Enough of this worldly living and compromised living. I'm sick of people saying, Pastor, I can't come to church because your church is too far away. Really? Heaven is too far away? You're unwilling to inconvenience yourself? You're going to be satisfied going to that worldly church? I ask people, How's your church? Oh, it's a good church, Pastor. Well, are you convicted of your sin when you go there? Well, no. How can it be a good church if you're walking in sin and you're not convicted and confronted with your sin? How can that be a good church? It's a wicked church. How can you possibly say, I'm, I'm I'm not right with Jesus but it's a wonderful church I go to and but there's no conviction of sin Come on wake up wake up get real with Jesus your soul is at risk This man was surrounded by four friends and the great crisis of the new birth was reached one Sunday morning October 11, 1834 Isaac had attended the early six o'clock prayer meeting and there he had requested his friends to pray for him every hour of the day for he had decided he must do business with God He had seen himself the vilest of sinners. Not only wasting ten precious years of his own life, but being the ringleader for the devil among the young men. And then God forgave him. He was in his own room. And the Holy Spirit came and witnessed to him that his repentance was heard and that he was accepted of God. Well, the first act this prodigal did was to return home and report to his mother all that had happened as he did business with God. Ann Marsden turned pale and almost fainted, but yet there was a skeptical thought in her mind. But the change in her son's conduct soon caused her to rejoice, for she observed that he now spent evenings at home instead of at the bar. She now saw that he was opening his Bible, and he was studying it with delight and meditating and praying. At times he would go to one of his friends, for for he had many questions, but immediately afterward he would retire for quiet and further study. He had always been a reader, but now one book enthralled him. The story of his conversion spread like wildfire. At fairs and markets it became the latest bit of gossip. Peals of laughter would be occasioned sometimes by people who had known him before, and they looked forward to seeing his next impersonation of the pastor's. Isaac began mounting the wagon after selling his bolts of material and he used it as a platform from which to preach. When feast days came to his town he would take up a position between two drinking houses, two bars and there he would begin to preach witnessing to the merrymakers. He would put placards on the trees and fences He would post with signs. In the inn where he met with his customers and received payment, the former reveler would ask for a glass of pure water, but he would pay the bar the price of a glass of beer. He would then hold his temperance lecture and intermingle it with the gospel. He wrote this 16 months after his conversion. I first dared to give God my whole heart and believed that the blood of Jesus Christ cleansed me from all sin. This happened at a place called Langworth at the inn where I put up Before I lay down to rest, I made a practice of reading a portion of Scripture on my knees. I did the same in the morning, and in this way I had read twice and a half through the Bible. And as I got to prayer, this passage came into my mind. My son, give me thine heart. And I said to God, "Here, Lord, thou shalt have it. Believing that a God so pure and holy would not keep sin in his hand. And blessed be God, I still feel the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing me from all sin. Oh my God, may this ever be my experience. Now please understand, Isaac Marsden is saying that when he gave God his heart, he knew that God would not keep a heart filled with sin. And so God removed all sin from his heart. In 1838, he made a journal entry. May God help me to live this year to his honor and glory as I never have before. I feel determined by God's help to spend and be spent in his service. I feel daily his blood cleansing me from all sin my evidence is brighter than ever what thousands there are in the church that live without this blessing oh my god arouse the church to seek after all the privilege mr harris says so long have we accustomed ourselves to be content with little things that we've gone far in disqualifying ourselves for the reception of greater things. Oh, my God, open mine eyes to behold all my privileges. Give my soul soul an impure, an impulse, and raise me near thy throne. I want a spiritual earthquake to take place in my soul every day. Sink me to the lowest depths and raise me up to the highest privilege. Oh, for an earnest of the spirit of power and glory. Revive me every moment. Enable me to live like some immortal being let down from Thy throne. Make me a stranger to the fear of men and help me to carry with me an atmosphere of salvation. Lord, Lord, lead thy innocent, unworthy creature every breath, thought, word, feeling, action, day and night, hour, every moment. Thou shalt have the praise. Thou shalt have the praise. That's the story of Isaac Marsden. My cry for you is will you, will you come up high? Will you give up the notion that you cannot have all of Jesus? Will you give up the lie you've been taught that you cannot be made holy? That you must be declared righteous? It must be imputed to you? Such lies. Jesus does not want to impute anything to you. Jesus does not want to declare you righteous. He wants to make you righteous. Many of you listening to this broadcast live at a very low level of Christian life. You have never risen up and said, I will have all that Jesus will give to me. You have been content with a few little pieces from the Lord's table. I want you to rise up and receive everything that Jesus would give you. I want the full privilege of being a son of the living God. And I proclaim to you, I have received this and my sin has been removed from my life. I have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and it is a joyous place to dwell, but it causes me to tremble in fear for the thousands of you who know not the presence of the Holy Spirit. You have been satisfied with a few crumbs from the table of God, but you've never feasted on the fullness of Jesus. And so you cast Him off as someone not important. You add to your already full and worldly life a sentimental statement about Jesus that I'll be a Christian having no idea that to be a Christian is to be crucified with Jesus Christ and to be resurrected with Jesus Christ. Now, we have some time left in this broadcast. And as I promised you last week, I am going to share such a gospel truth that it has set my heart aflame. It has set my feet to dancing. It is such a joyous truth. I've tried by the story of Isaac Marsden to prepare your heart for this astonishing truth. It is the fullness of what the gospel is all about. It's what is available for you. So let me share it with you. John, the 14th chapter. This passage of scripture has been one of my most favorite from the time I was a small child. It was always a looking forward to what, what, what God would do in the future. Let me read it for you. John 14, beginning with verse 1. Your heart must not be troubled. You must believe in God and you must believe in me. There are many dwelling places. The King James Version says there are many mansions. The NIV there are many rooms in my father's house. The actual Greek meaning is there are many stayings, places where you can stay, an abode, a house, a mansion. They're all appropriate definitions. There are many staying places dwelling places in my father's house and if not I would have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you and even if I may go and prepare a place for you I am coming again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may also be and you know where I'm going. You know the way. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And, and and how are we to know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have also known my Father. And from now on, you will know him and have seen him. Now this passage has always meant so much to me because as a child we lived in a very small maybe 900 square foot ugly little house with a family of five mom and dad and three brothers and we would drive by beautiful homes and I would say to my father Daddy, why can't we live in a house like that one? And he would say to me We'll live in a house like that when we go to heaven. Now, I knew that Dad was giving 50% of his income to missionary work. Dad said, We're making payments on our house that Jesus is preparing for us in heaven. So always in my family, this passage of scripture referred to to a future time and I accepted that. There are many dwelling places, many mansions, many rooms, many many dwelling places, staying places, places where you're going to stay. And if not, I would have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you. And even if I may go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. It was always very precious to my heart that one day Jesus was going to come in the clouds of heaven and he was going to take us to those mansions that he had prepared in his father's house. I'd never connected this passage with another passage found in John, the 14th chapter, again, continuing reading in the same context as John 14 through 3 this begins in verse 23 it's in the context of one of his disciples saying to him Lord but what has happened that you are about to manifest yourself to us and not to the world Jesus had been saying I'm going to manifest myself to you I'm going to show myself to you And Jesus answered, and he said to him, If anyone may love me, he will keep my word, or he will keep my commands. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him, and will make a dwelling place with him. The word for abode is the same here as in John 14one 1-3. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back and get you. But now he's saying, look, if you obey my commands, if you really are one with me, my Father will love you. And we will come, we meaning the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they will all come to us now in the present time, and He will make in us a dwelling place, a staying place, where God will live in us. The ones not loving me does not keep my words. And that the word you hear is not mine, but the Father's, the one having sent me. I've spoken these things to you while remaining with you, but but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, that one will reach you all, will teach you all things, and I will remind you all that I have said to you. I leave peace with you. I give to you my peace. Peace is provision hospitality the creation of a home I live in a house my house is not my home because I live in my house alone a home is where two people or more dwell together as one when my late wife was alive I used to say to her wherever we are as long as you're with me we're at home because home is where the heart is and my heart was with her when she died I lost my home I often don't like to be in this house it's empty, it's big Oh, I hold meetings here I do counseling here I host people But then I like to get out, go somewhere else, because the house is empty. Now, the Lord is in the process of bringing to me a wife, and when she comes and we're married, we'll make a home together. Home is where the heart is. This passage of Scripture is saying, Look, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and get you. But in the meantime, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all going to come and dwell in you and make in you a staying place, making you a home, an abiding place. We're going to dwell in you Now, this is such a a glorious revelation that, that we've not been left as orphans. It matters not how hard the world is on us or what persecution comes to us or what business trauma we face. God is in us and He speaks to us. The Spirit of God said to me, As I was groaning over not having a wife, not having a home. As I was groaning over people in the congregation, over the National Prayer Chapel. As I was groaning over you who listened to this broadcast. The Holy Spirit, very kindly, very gently, with great love and compassion said to me, I'm working everything out. I'm working everything out. Be patient. Oh, the joy of my heart is having a home with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Having a home with God Himself. But God will not come and dwell in a divided heart. God will not come and dwell in the heart of a man or a woman who is walking in known rebellion. Remember Jesus said in John, John's Gospel or John's revelation The third chapter speaking to the church at Laodicea, he said, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth, church, because you're lukewarm. In other words, you're compromised with the world. You're not pure. You're not clean. You're not filled with my Father and with my Spirit and with me. And I'm so sick of this atmosphere in your life. I'm about to vomit you out. How is Jesus looking at you today? Does He dwell in you? Does He manifest Himself to you? Does He speak to you? If not, it's because you have not yet entered into full consecration. When a person enters into full consecration, that is, choosing to give our lives, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, fully into the hands of God, When we do business with God, we confess our sins. We confess the coldness of our hearts. We confess our wasted time. Any anger, any bitterness, any accusations, any judgments, when we've laid everything out and we have asked Jesus if He would come and take over our whole life holding nothing back from Him He will come and cleanse us He will come and remove all sin from our heart when we make the decision that we will give our sin to Jesus and we will give our heart, our life, our mind to Jesus withholding nothing from his precious heart he will come and cleanse and purify and make for himself a bedroom in our heart and there will be peace in our life We will know that the struggle is over and the joy of the Lord will fill us. Now we know from a number of different passages, including that wonderful passage that one of our precious ones shared on Sunday in the seventh chapter. Let me read it for you, Romans seven verse one. Are you ignorant, brother? For I'm speaking to men that know law, that the law lords it over the man for so long as a time as he lives. Now the married woman has been bound by law to the living husband, but if the husband may die, she has been released from the law of the husband. so then the husband being alive. She will be called an adulteress, if she may become married to a different husband. But if the husband may die, she is free from the law. She is not an adulteress, having become married to a different husband. Therefore, my brothers, you were also put to death to the law by means of the body of Christ. With the result that you became married to a different husband to one having been raised out from among the dead, so that we may bear fruit to God. For when we used to be in the flesh, the passions of our sins through the law used to be at work in our members with the result that we bore fruit to death. But now we were delivered from the law, having died to that by which we used to be bound with Reference to us to serve God in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. There's only one way to enter into Jesus, and that is by doing serious business with Him, by dying to all that we've held on to. And you do that by going to Jesus and confessing, admitting, taking full responsibility and asking Him by His grace to receive you. And you stay there before Him until you've prayed to the very bottom. There are people who've said to me, Pastor, I've tried to be righteous. I've tried to pray. Nothing works. Well, that's because you were never willing to die out. You were never willing to give up control of your life. You must come to an utter end of yourself. You must give up all hope of saving yourself or of creating your own life. You must utterly give up your worldly desires, your worldly pleasures. This is the narrow road John Bunyan wrote about in Pilgrim's Progress you must leave the city of destruction behind and you must seek after the Lord with all your heart many of you have lazed along having a form of godliness but no power walking in your ambition and your sin it breaks my heart. We're out of time for today. We're facing the end of this month and we're still far short of what we need to cover radio. I'm going to give you the address and I just ask that you pray and ask Jesus what it is you need to send. I apologize for a lack of thank you notes. This has been a very difficult three weeks I will try to catch up but this is a a one man with Jesus operation write to the National Prayer Chapel Post Office Box 2346 Woodbridge, Virginia 22195 I need to hear from many of you this week I ask you to give exactly what the Holy Spirit prompts you to give. I would like to be able to continue this radio broadcast. So pray. The National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come join us this coming Sunday. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you in Jesus. I'll talk to you soon.